Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Kyle Hale is an entrepreneur and technology executive who built the foundation of his career in sales and operations with both B2B and B2C high growth technology companies. His roles span the fitness industry, multi-unit operations and QSR, e-commerce, selling software to the enterprise, and most recently as a partner and COO of Bite Squad, the restaurant delivery service, which was acquired for $321 million in January of 2019. As COO, Kyle led the customer support, dispatch, field operations, and cross-matrix managed sales, marketing, and product with the CEOs. A unique generalist with expansive domain knowledge in sales, marketing automation, product software development, full-cycle recruiting, leadership, and strategy execution. More of a creative than an executive, he's a non-egotistical approach with a focus on developing the psychology and performance of his team through one-to-one mentoring. After building two companies to acquisition in the last seven years, he's now consulting with startups in the Midwest and serving as the chief dad officer to his two-year-old son, Sky. Um, that's probably the coolest thing that's been happening to you recently. Kyle, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. It's great to, great to meet you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. And just before we kind of started up, you said that you do have that bit of a unique background that not a lot of COOs come out of the sales zone. But yeah. what's interesting is is the COO is such a misunderstood role that they can almost come out of so many different areas. You know, some run finance, some run engineering, some run sales. So why don't you give us some of your background and, and maybe tell us a little bit about Byte Squad, who they were, and, um, and we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure. So I'll start with my background and then I'll, I'll kind of pipe that into to Byte Squad. So yeah, as you mentioned, I, I really started my career in sales and, you know, my first job out of college was, was selling, you know, super hardcore cold calling for a job, for a job board, basically very similar to Monster Career Builder, but it was a, it was a local brand and, and the founder did something really smart where we, he had, he basically had job boards that appeared local. So jobs in Minneapolis or jobs in Vancouver, but he had them all over the country. And so like no one was doing that kind of hyper local flair yet. Mm. Uh, but it was a from scratch brand. So I think, you know, what I really learned there in my first job was, you know, building a brand and selling against career builder monster. And people were still doing a lot of postings in the paper at that time. So just the tenacity it takes and the value you have to communicate in a very condensed way to, to kind of be able to get a brown brand off the ground through, through cold calling was a great experience. Um, and then that led me into the fitness industry where I also led uh, sales for lifetime fitness, which was publicly traded for a while and then went back private. Uh, it was purchased by Equinox. Um, and then from there, I went into uh, specialty food for a, a company that ended up folding, but it was called Homemade Pizza. And it was a organic, all-natural uh, bake-at-home pizza brand out of Chicago. And so I, I launched several different cities and markets for them across the country. Um, and then that led me into the daily deal space. So when, when Groupon was getting hot and living social, we, we'd started a brand um, called CrowdCut. I'd, I'd met the founders who were the co-CEOs would be the co-CEOs of Bite Squad as well later on. So we, we've been working together actually for a while. Right. We'll, we'll get there in a second. But, um, you know, so we, I joined about a month after they started CrowdCut and I led, uh, I was VP of sales and operations for the Daily Deal site. And we were very successful for kind of scrappy single market site. We were doing about a million dollars a month at the time. And we ended up selling to a, a competitor. Um, and this then kind of leads us into Bite Squad. So the origin story of Bite Squad was, as the daily deal world kind of started to get saturated um, and everyone started selling goods. So there's group on goods. We did the same thing that was successful for us, but 
it was still saturated and kind of declining as far as the daily deal space itself. And so we were just saying like, what else can we do? And we were, I was using a service in town called Restaurant Connection, which was out of San Diego. That was a, a restaurant delivery service provider. It only had like 10 restaurants. Um, and you know, the drivers weren't that presentable. It just wasn't the marketplace that it is now. And we said, Hey, like the tech's not good. The drivers aren't friendly and presentable. Um, and you know, it, the daily deals for restaurants sell out really fast. The restaurants don't love them because they're discounting their brand half off and they don't believe like the loyalty is there basically from the customer for repeat visits. So we said, let's spin, let's spin off another brand <coughs> and basically, you know, start this restaurant platform. And DoorDash wasn't around yet. Um, <clears throat> Postmates, I think was around, but wasn't what they are today. They, they kind of pivoted into that. Okay. Grub was around, but not doing delivery themselves. They were more of a portal. Um, and so E24 was around and grub and that was really about it. And so I took my daily deal sales team and we just wireframed up what we thought bite squad was going to look like. And we sold the first 20 restaurants and you know, that was pretty much market fit for us as, as far as we were concerned on the restaurant side. And then we went and built the platform, came back 90 days later to the restaurants and said, okay, we're ready to go live. And then we used the daily deal site to sell, you know, deals for half off the delivery fee or free delivery. And that was, that was how we seeded our first several thousand customers and that worked for mm -hmm. us. And that was, that was the beginning. I love that you actually just did proof of concept, Like you found 20 restaurants that said yes. And then you went and built the model afterwards. You didn't build it first. Yeah. And that's, I think we've always been good at that of like going out and proving. Cause we've done that in different ways. And I think when you get that proof of concept, it just gives you more confidence to build the product and allocate resources towards it. <clears throat> Okay. So I want to go back actually strangely to the, um, the, the, the folding pizza business and find yeah. out what, what your lessons were kind of in that. Cause I think there's always some lessons in those failures that we get along the way and, and um, not failures, but like just yeah. working and building something. And then what were the big lessons out of that? Yeah, there's some really good ones. I, I would say number one was that we primarily hired, you know, kids that were in high school. And <clears throat> so in Minnesota, it's really easy to find young talent, you know, that's in high school, that's willing to work. When I opened up our stores on the East Coast in the DC area, the kids don't, it's different there. They're prepping to go to like Ivy League school or go to college. And so it was really hard to hire there. So I just learned about the different geographies and what hiring challenges can be. Hmm. I'd say lesson number two was that they had an amazing product. It was on Oprah as one of her favorite things. It was people I see still to this day. So like that is the best pizza I've ever had. And that's, that's saying a lot, I think, for a bacon home pizza, especially, you know, um, but the product was amazing. The presentation of the product was amazing. The stores were very small and they kind of had an Apple store like feel to it. So I really understood the kind of importance of packaging and product, but their business model was pretty flawed in that they, they burnt a lot of money in bad real estate decisions. And they also had these commissaries that were kind of revenue, non-revenue generating. Mm. Um, so, I mean, those were, those are the main lessons for me. Well overhead. I love the employee lesson as well. It's interesting. I used to be involved in a company called College Pro Painters and they just sold or closed College Pro after about 50 years in business. And it was because they couldn't find university students to run painting businesses anymore. It was easier for them to run other models. I was, I was kind of laughing when I was listening to Sean uh, Taher's podcast with you because you guys were, I think you guys had talked about College Pro and I, I you know, knew Sean back then and Sean also hustled uh like spring break packages on college campuses and stuff. So it was kind of funny to just point John. It was funny to listen to your guys' interview. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had a very similar upbringing too, right? Always a bit of the hustle and, and savvy street smart. How did you meet your two founders originally, the two co-founders probably like when you did CrowdCut? Yeah. So they were friends with, so a good friend of mine who's a chiropractor, his boss 
was a friend of Keanu Narash, the, the co-founders of Bite Squad. And so my friend's boss, I was out with them at just a happy hour locally here. And um, I was just kind of expressing that I was kind of planning on leaving the, the homemade pizza business because they wanted me to move to DC. I spent enough time out there to know I didn't want to be out there. Um, and so we were just talking about that. And he said, hey, you should meet, you know, Keanu. They just started a daily deal site similar to, to Groupon. And I met Keanu a day later and I actually walked him into three three businesses I thought would do daily deals where I knew the business owners and we like closed them there. And he was like, do you want to come work for us? And I was like, cool. <laughs> and, uh, and then he and I just locked ourselves in a, in a room and cold called for like three weeks straight and sold a ton of deals together. It was a blast. Really interesting. So, okay. So you got to like them, know these guys, you built that company up and you sold CrowdCut then to yeah, a competitor? To a competitor out of the South. Yeah. And how did that exit go? That exit was fine because it was, it was like part cash and then part earn out over time. And the, I think it was our very last payment we got. Then that company ended up folding like I think a couple months later or half a year later. Wow. So you got lucky. So, yeah. So, and we didn't have a ton of assets. We had a small team in Minnesota and we were able to transition a lot of them into the, into the bite squad organization. So that one was fine. It just, that, that industry kind of ran its course and you know, you've seen Groupon kind of sputter along, I think over time. Did, did that industry run its course because Groupon grew too quickly or did it just run its course because people got bored of it or that market got saturated? What, what happened? Yeah, I think people, one, I think people get bored of it because it's, you can only get, when that first came out, to be getting 50% off massages and resort packages and all these things was really new and special. And over time that just wears out. And for mm. the restaurants and the businesses, they just got sick of the discounting too. Right. Okay. <coughs> they love the idea of the model, but they couldn't figure out the, the economics of it afterwards. Yeah. And I think you just got to deliver more value than a discount and they've tried to over time, but um, I think it just was kind of a, I don't want to call it a fad cause it's still around, but you know, close to. Yeah, I used to be in the barter industry and it was similar. We used to do a lot with um, with lines of credit for big hotel chains and stuff. They would sell those off at discount and then we'd flip them out. So so then you guys decided to do the business again. Was there any second thoughts or wondering like, you know, because I've always said that the role of the COO is so powerful to be so connected to the CEO, but you guys already knew each other, had already yeah. done business together. Was there any second thoughts of should we do this again or did you just jump right in and go, hell yeah? We just jumped right in and went, hell yeah. I mean, once we got those 20 restaurants on board and I was, we were, I was using a service in Minneapolis. Arash, one of the co-CEOs was using a service in, in Miami where he was located. And so like, we just kind of got the value. Um, I had enough food background where I, I saw the value too. And, you know, we just felt like the opportunity was there. It's, it's something that's been, it was built off something that's done for a long time. I mean, restaurants have been doing delivery for a long time. It just hadn't been productized and commoditized, you know, the, the way that the services have done it now. Um, and yeah. then did you, did you guys self-fund initially? We self-funded initially and did some very small seed rounds in the first, you know, call it in year two. And then I don't know if you caught this on my LinkedIn profile, but I actually left then in Boomerang back. So I left then after, so we started Bite Squad in 2012. I left in 2015 and came back in 2017. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah, let's touch there and then I'll go back to the seed rounds then. So why did you leave and then why did you come back? So I think I left because after I was, A, I was burnt out on, I was burnt out on selling to SMBs because Daily Deal was like, it was the Wild West and it was another one of those like super high growth, really fast. But Bite Squad was going to be selling to restaurants then and they're just, they're, you know, really challenging to sell to. Um, they get sold to more than anybody on the planet, like credit card processing, loyalty programs, software, advertising agencies. I mean, these, these guys and gals, like they're troopers for how many calls they get. I'll, I'll give them that for sure. 
So I just kind of felt like I also was not really learning anything anymore. And I'm one of those types where when I stop learning, I kind of die on the inside. And so I just felt like, you know, it's time for me to move on. And they weren't at a point where they were giving out equity in Bite Squad. So I wasn't, I was an employee of CrowdCut and then helped them start Bite Squad. So like at Bite Squad start, I wasn't a partner yet. Okay. And I kind of felt like the ceiling was there from a learning standpoint, from an equity standpoint. And I, and I just got a great opportunity to go be a VP of enterprise sales for a venture back software company in the Twin Cities called Lead Pages and Drip. It's a landing pages and marketing automation software. Oh, so you flipped, you went over to Lead Pages and then left Lead Pages to come back? Yeah. And then, so I met Lead Pages and Drip for two years, which ends up being a wildly important part of the story because, you know, Lead Pages, all you talk about is funnels and conversion rate optimization. That's all you talk about. And that's all you sell. And that's yeah. really very exploratory on the software side. So I got to know the SaaS ecosystem probably better than most. And then we also acquired um, Drip, which was a marketing automation platform and sure. fantastic workflow builder built by engineers, uh, really, really, really solid platform. And so that taught me a lot about automation in general, which would lend itself really well, both to marketing for Byte Squad and product and other things. So um, I ended up going back because you know, I think I learned so much at Drip and Lead Pages, but I didn't feel like I was able to apply everything I was learning there. Really, yeah, how, how big were those? I'm a former, former client of Lead Pages as well. How, how big were those companies? Lead pages was, I mean, they were, they were the darling of, of tech in Minneapolis for several years and they're still well regarded, but they were, you know, probably around 150 employees when I joined. Oh, I um, thought I would have thought they were like three or four times that we had the, the founder of, or one of the COO from Unbounce was a member of our COO Alliance. And, um, for some reason I thought that, that lead pages would have been like three or 400 employees at that point. No, not that big. Unbounce is also a great company. We've sold against them and I learned that that ecosystem really well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we acquired Drip, and Drip was out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so oh, well. we kind of Apple hired them. They moved here, and um, that company was very small. I mean, they were, you know, like seven, eight employees, I think. Wow. At, at Max, it was the founders and then some product people and some salespeople. And um, so that was great. And learning to sell that product was fantastic and really served me well, you know, kind of later so on. What were any, any big lessons that you took from Lead Pages and from Drip then that you brought back with you? Yeah, so I think going back to lead pages, you're really looking at everything as a funnel because everything's about get the lead to the page, convert it, and after they convert, can you show them something else in the funnel? And you just keep on, you know, basically, you, you notice I made a comment to you when I was submitting, um, I was submitting something, a form, I think, on your landing, on your webpage, and I told you that it was, that it was broken. Right. Uh, and so, like, that's just, I'm just now wired to, like, look at every little piece of the funnel. So, like, I would say where that really served me well is, um, like our driver hiring funnel at Byte Squad, for example, when I came back and I went through the process to apply as a driver, I was like, this seems like it's really way too hard, way too many steps. And then I tried it. I, that was on desktop. Then I went to do it from my phone and I was like, oh my God, I can't even complete this on my phone. You know, all these drivers are probably mostly applying for their phones. So then I had marketing just tag, you know, Google Tag Manager where's the traffic coming from to this application page? Well, sure enough, 70% of the traffic's coming from mobile. Wow. So now we have 70% of our applicants coming from mobile. It's really hard to apply on mobile and we're having a service level problem at the time. And that just basically means you don't have enough drivers. So your driver hiring funnel is your most, most important funnel. So I just did this full audit and kind of instincts from what I learned at lead pages led to the audit and then ask about a little bit of data and we overhauled that funnel. And anytime, any, anytime I've overhauled a funnel like that, you almost always get a 30% increase in conversion rate. And it took us about six months to overhaul it and I had to bring some awareness to the issue and get it on roadmap and all that. 
Um, but we 2X'd our, our driver hires like almost immediately afterwards. Our service level problems, I don't want to say they went away, they didn't go away, but we had way less fire around hiring drivers and I was able to move on to other parts of the business as we continued to refine that. So are you going to start a new company called Overhaul and take a percentage of the upside <laughs> from all your clients? I probably should, but I use it. I, you know, I'm consulting right now with a few groups and I, and I use it a lot in product and I use it everywhere. I mean, I used it on, on, then on the drip side where that's all marketing automation. You're really looking at for sure know, going down those workflows that helped me automate our customer support functions and just kind of getting some of that DNA in me. So it was, it was really valuable. And I don't think I could have done what I did for BiteSweat had I not left for a couple of years. And then to come back as a equity partner for something I helped start and kind of really feel like a part of the original team and come back as, you know, what really felt like a founder was, was pretty special. Well, it's funny. I kind of said that tongue in cheek, but I almost mean it because I, I bumped into a couple of um, ad agencies over the last 18 months, one called Giddy Up that does a lot of digital marketing, but they only do work for um, a percentage of revenue and some upside in the company. So they're literally turning companies away. Yeah. Um, they don't charge you a fee. They just take a pure percentage of revenue and a percentage of your, of your company. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah. They, and then they're as good as they say they are. Whereas so many agencies promise you the world, but then they can't convert. It's like, damn, if you're that good, um, which you are. <laughs> yeah, performance based. I think performance based uh, monetizations always music to my ears. If you can ever get it, it's hard to find though. It's hard to find, and then also a little bit of equity in the company as well, right? If you can get equity and options yeah. in some of these businesses too, that's where your real kick comes. So you leave there, you guys start up. Um, uh, the food business, the food delivery. What's it called again? Why am I blanking? Right. Bite Squad, yep. Yes, yeah, so you bite up, but you start up Bite Squad. Um, you do your first two rounds of funding. Yep. What were the, how much were the seed rounds? So the seed round was just like a couple million, I think. And I wasn't around for the seed round, but, and then we took a bigger round. Uh, I don't think they've ever made it public, so I probably shouldn't say exactly, but the, the second big round came from Briegel Sagemount, the venture capital out of New York. And that was a, that was a pretty big round, especially for the Midwest. But all in all, our funding was sub, you know, 40 million. Right. So enough in the first round, though, just to get your technology up off the ground and get some salespeople. And then was it all just really hardcore sales to get started? Or was it really just hardcore sales to get all the restaurants? Because it's really a two-sided marketplace yeah. in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's hardcore sales. And it's not, I think what a lot of people, it, what's not represented well is that most of the sales are closed in person at the restaurant. As I was kind of mentioned earlier, like, so it's really an outside sales team. It's a field sales wow. team. And so that's, that's a high cost, you know, and you have reps traveling because you send your best reps to your new market opening. So there's a definitely a cost center around sales because um, there's a lot of travel involved and it, it definitely like, it takes, it takes, uh, it takes a big group to, to achieve that growth. So we had a, a pretty sizable sales team. What, what, what are good salespeople outside salespeople? What are you having to pay them to, to generate and keep them? And, and what's the lifespan of them? Is it six months, six years, two months, two years? Depends. This was my first, this was my first experience with outside sales reps, you know, daily deal sites were really pretty much able to do inside sales with a little bit of out, but I think outside sales in our industry, you're going to see, you're going to see salaries anywhere between 35 and 60. And you're going to see an on target earnings of, of around 100, you know, and then you have your killers that might make 200 plus. I mean, we, we had some killers that were just crushing it. So, and how long do they stay with you? I mean, some of them have been around for several years, but I think the average sales cycle is probably, you know, more like a year. It, it's pretty burnout. So you're traveling a lot. Um, you're moving around a lot. So, yeah. And are they on like how many, what are they in a, in a city for a month and then they move or in the city for a couple of weeks or 
Yeah, it could be either. It could be a couple of weeks. It could be a month. Sometimes we're sending people to Hawaii and they're there for a couple of months. I mean, so it was, we were all over the country. So it kind of depends on what the market needed. So you're just looking for the, the fresh out of university kids in there, right? That just want to go and experience and have laptop. <clears throat> a lot of that. Yeah, we generally found anyone who was too tenured was kind of stuck in their ways. And, you know, that was harder to trans kind of convert that person into a high performer. So what do you think were the big successes then? Because you guys grew, how many employees were you when you, um, you know, before you guys sold? So we were up to, you know, we've got the, the contact center in Mexico City with over 200 team members. That was outsourced, so they weren't employees. But, you know, we've got the contact center in Mexico City. We had, um, it's, a, it's, for one, I think this is great to be on the show because it's such an operations heavy business. So you mm -hmm. have, let me just kind of give you a feel for the structure maybe, and that'll lead into the people. Um, so we have Mexico City, you know, we have over, you know, a couple hundred people there. You've got field operations. So you have about two, one to two people in every city that you operate in. They're the ones that are really hiring the drivers. Um, some markets you can manage virtually, you know, if you're launching them from scratch just to keep the cost level down. But at some point, if they reach a certain order threshold, you've got to put a person there. You've got, um, you know, customer support uh, in the U.S. Then you've got dispatch. Uh, you've got all the normal functions, HR, marketing, legal, um, and so, I mean, we, when I left, I think we were, you know, around just, if I just count the bite squad org or up to acquisition, let's say we were, you know, pretty close to 500 people, not including drivers, which there's, you know, 10,000 plus of. Yeah. And, and so 500 people plus the 10,000 drivers over a course of how many years did you build that up? Four or five? Uh, the total, uh, so bite squad started in 2012 and sold in 2019. So it was seven years. So there's got to be a pile, like book after book after book of lessons. By the way, when you outsourced the call center in New Mexico, you didn't by chance use a group called Listen Up Espanol, did you? No, we didn't. Okay. I have just happened to have friends that run outsourced call centers in Mexico. Okay. Um, so what was that like running with an outsourced call center? And how did you, how did you source one? How did you pick one? So Keon really was the one who went down to Mexico City. And he was one of the CEOs. So he went down there and, and was the one that really kind of got the infrastructure up off the ground. I was the one that was really responsible for getting the U.S. and Mexico City team to work together and run how to, learn how to run shifts together, learn how to kind of manipulate different channels if we're seeing you know, more calls versus chats or tickets or whatever it is. So And getting those teams to communicate well together. That, that took some time, but I tell you, it was so amazing what you can accomplish just through Slack and you know, video calls and just really on, on the fly coaching. So like if they're, if they're not in sync on a, on something, like if it is um, not paying attention to the right support issues that are coming in, they're not looking at the right priority, just getting those two teams to understand what the priority priority is and why. And it was honestly like just probably two weeks straight of just like relentless through dinner rush on Friday nights and through the weekends, having my laptop open at home and just coaching them through how to work, you know, more efficiently together. So you mentioned coaching a couple times here. You've also, it was kind of mentioned in your bio that I started this with. What does coaching mean to you? How does, do you have a, a model or a framework that you use for coaching and how does that kind of flow for you? Yeah, I think the, I, I love like right on the job coaching um, anytime you can do that. So I think there's, there's different formats for coaching, but the, I guess the things that I look at, one of the most important things that I always teach, I think for my sales background is how to sell internally especially to your front lines team members, because they're the ones that are closest to market. They're the ones talking to customers. They're the ones talking to drivers, to restaurants. And so they, they know the trends and what's going on and they know when there's problems, but you know, most people aren't very good at like kind of boiling that down to here's the problem. Here's how I'm quantifying it. Here's what's to gain. Um, and you know, here's a path to, to fix it, I think. And so I do a lot of 
coaching through teaching people how to send better emails and make them more digestible to the executive team. So I spent a ton of time doing that because I can just leverage my sales background there. So I think that's something I spent a lot of time on. Um, and then I think the other thing on coaching is just frameworks, like giving people really good frameworks. So in support, it's really like, you know, here are your, here's your KPIs you've got to monitor. Here's your dashboard. Let's build it out together. And here's why we're selecting certain things. Um, here's your issue types that you're getting inbound and tracking those. Um, and then really here's all the priority of the issues that you need to solve. And here's how you hire people, train people. And so I, I think frameworks are really effective because once they have that, then they can take it with them forever. And the, and the frameworks that you're doing, are, are these like SOPs or playbooks that you're giving them that you're training on that? Yep. Yeah. Just, just stuff that we make together, but largely I'm usually doing the first kind of framework for it and then helping working with them to kind of fill it in because they're going to have some knowledge that I may not have, but I need to help them. So you kind of, it's a kind of a done with you project, which is fun. <laughs> And I hate to, to ask this question because I don't want people to think it's about the system or the tool, but it really is more about the, you can write down the framework on a post-it note and photocopy it or send it out to people. And you don't need any special system, but did you use any special system or tool to automate or to, um, to, to kind of SOP everything to create your playbooks? Uh, really just Google Docs. Like we, yeah. we, were, we were super scrappy. We still, up until we got acquired, we still had a, the free instance of Slack, which is remarkable because we had like <laughs> thousand people on slack and we were somehow still using the free version so we uh, there's a line in moneyball where, where billy bean says uh they're kind of making fun of the fact that he charges the employees for uh the soda and the vending machines i don't know if you've seen that movie or not no. um but he says i like to, you know billy likes to keep the money on the field and so we we didn't charge you know i'm not saying that we did that but you know i think we we largely like tried to save money where we could in software and everything else and we try to keep our money in our growth yeah. And, and I kind of agree with all that as well. I think too many people try to, in every case, whether they're building a dashboarding software or putting processes in place, like it's not about using something like process street or Basecamp. or it's, it's understanding the methodology first, right? It's not about the newest email tools, but actually having a system to manage your emails. And I think people skip over the important stuff that you guys seem to, to wrap your head around pretty early. Yeah, I agree. Um, so on the, on the growth and on the hiring, like to, to get 500 internal people, at what point did you bring HR into the company? So for, for things like driver hiring, where you're hiring thousands of drivers a month, you, you don't really bring them in because the city managers, it's such high volume that you really need your city managers to kind of process that. HR is helping with things like background checks and they're helping with some of kind of the behind the scenes stuff. But your local city manager in that city is going to be the best person to kind of the best proxy for hiring the right people. On the... On the corporate side, um, you know, hiring was when I came back. Like we didn't have, we didn't have a marketing team really. You know, we didn't have an HR team. Like we had one person in HR when I came back. We mm -hmm. didn't have. We had you know two or three people in marketing. Uh, finance wasn't built out. So I spent my first probably fifty percent of my time the first six months coming back, and I just had an Excel spreadsheet with every every single hire that we needed to make, and that's kind of where that sales background kicks in. And I'm just I'm I'm sourcing the ads myself from Indeed. So I'm hiring a director of support, director of dispatch, managers, training managers, director of HR. Um, I helped hire our first CMO. Um, I'm hiring content people, marketing automation specialists. I mean, the list goes on. And so I was really involved in that and I love hiring. I love it. It's something I've done a lot of it and it's something mm -hmm. I really enjoy. And as I've heard a billion times on this podcast, getting the right people for the right stage of business that you're in and what they're really charged with for I, I really think in like 12 months term is 
what does this person have to accomplish in the next 12 months? Because if they can do that, that's the high priority stuff. And they likely can at least make it a couple of years, two, three, yep. four years, hopefully longer. Yep. Than so, so really it was, uh, you know, kind of partnering with whoever the department that needed to hire with. And I was working with them and I oftentimes would do, if it wasn't something I oversaw, then I would at least come in and do the final interview. And so I really kind of safeguarded, um, you know, who we brought in because I was really the presence in Minneapolis. Kian was in Mexico or in Las Vegas where his residence was and Mirage was in Miami. So I was really the leader from the exact team on, you know, in Minneapolis, the only one that was kind of visible every day. What, what do you think your weaknesses were as a COO? I mean, you, you clearly have a bunch of strengths and I think we all have to have some weaknesses and be okay with that to kind of delegate them and get them off our plate. Were there a couple areas that you just got off your plate right away or try to avoid? Yeah. So I think where I would say I'm weakest would be in, in like finance and accounting. Um, I just don't have a really strong mathematical mind. Um, it, it kind of pisses me off because I want to, you know, and I, I kind of have this thing that I struggle with where when I'm not good at something and like I'm in a room and I can't quite comprehend exactly what people are saying, or I have to ask a lot of questions. I get frustrated. Sure. And and then I have this kind of vicious loop where I'll go buy a book about that subject and I'll read it and kind of struggle through with it and get mad, kind of angry about that. But I've learned that if I can learn enough to be able to ask the right questions, to be able to still guide the overall objective or things about the business, then that's good enough. Because a lot of times that person in finance accounting or, or data analytics, you know, they don't always have the insight to the customer so that they can make some bad decisions without totally. your insight. Totally. And so if I, if I can have enough, you know, tools to be able to ask questions that at least get, help me get through that conversation with them, then we both come out better on the end. So I'd say that's a weakness of mine. Um, is, and then just like deep, deep analytics and, yeah, I'm not a chief analytics officer, so that kind of makes sense. But I would say like anything overly analytical and then financial models and accounting, just not not my jam. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And I, I think, unfortunately, the school system hurt a lot of us because it told us that we had to be the smart person and memorize everything and be good at everything. Or yeah. you, know, you go to school for 18 years and you're told you suck at something because you're getting 65% all the time. But like, like you pointed out, you could get the head of analytics and they would be terrible at sales and marketing and hiring too. So yeah. you, you kind of need to have those skills. How did you, how did you guys structure your leadership team and, and with the remote, um, how did you guys meet and how often did you meet? So, uh, leadership team structure, just as far as like, uh, what roles we had or what titles we had. Yeah. Like what, just walk us through the top level of the org chart, who reported to who and, and, um, you know, yeah. who ran which business areas. So I'll start with the CEO. So, uh, Keanu, they have very different skill sets, both very smart. Arash largely spent his time in growth strategy and in uh, engineering and tech infrastructure. Um, Keon was much more PNL driven um, and operations. So he also like did sales early on. So he was kind of sales ops and, and uh, PNL with finance and accounting. And then I had uh, customer support dispatch, which is basically all the logistics around which driver gets what, what order, you know, from what restaurant. Um, all the menus team and kind of restaurant success team. So you got to build the menu for the restaurant, get them onboarded. Mm -hmm. um, field ops, which are the, the folks in the city, you know, kind of hiring the drivers and managing the business in, this, in the city. Um, so those teams rolled up to me. And then I cross-managed uh, marketing, mostly around marketing automation since I came from Drip and implemented Drip at Bite Squad. So I had a lot of knowledge base there. Yep. Uh, and helped the CMO build out the marketing team, the you know, content marketing automation specialists and all that. And then sales were the other. So marketing and sales were kind of the two departments I cross-managed. And then 
internal product I, I pretty much owned with the VP of product. Um, so it was pretty much, we have all these tools and systems we got to use to run the business. Um, so that was on, on my end. And then obviously CMOs, you know, running marketing, uh, our chief legal really ran HR and legal and then our CFO ran finance and accounting. And then how did you guys meet? How often did you meet? What was the structure there? So we did a weekly, was it a weekly? Yeah. We, so what we had <clears throat> the top exec team. So the C-level met once every two weeks on, on Thursdays, we had our, our kind of biweekly meeting. And then we all got together then with our director levels um, once a, every Monday. Every Monday we had kind of a, a Monday kickoff meeting. And then, okay, so, so you guys are meeting, meeting remotely. A lot of your meetings were obviously done then over Zoom as well. Yep, tons. Um, God, I had the question related to um, your growth and culture. I guess I can segue into the culture question. It'll come back to me on where I was going to ask on this. But oh, why did you go back? Why did you why did you end up going back like from lead pages and drip to go back over? Yeah. It's it's funny because it was I didn't think I would go back, not because we ended on bad terms or anything like that. I just thought that kind of cycle of my life was over, you know? Mm -hmm. And we stayed we stayed friendly while I was gone, Keanu Rosh and I. And, you know, I knew they were growing and I think they had asked me to come back like probably six months prior to when I did. And I said, no, like, you know, I'm, I'm good where I'm at. I'm, I'm happy. I was making great money. I was learning a ton. I was working with a huge marketing team. I was building out the sales team. It was a lot of fun. And then I think after they got that, that round from Regal Sage Mount, they kind of came back more seriously and we're like, you know, we want you to come back as president and COO. Um, and at that point when I kind of learned more about the growth, you know, cause we hadn't really dove into that the last few times they'd approached me again. Um, and I saw the growth and I got really excited because I knew that there was a big hole. A lot of the gaps that they had as CEOs were the ones that I was good at. You could fill, yeah. And I could fill, and I was so excited for me because I learned all this stuff at Triple Lead Pages that I felt like I had absorbed but wasn't really able to kind of put back out into the world. And for me, this was, wow, I can apply all this stuff and like fix a ton of stuff and have a ton of fun and build a big team. And I like leading big teams and building companies. Well, it's almost like you came back in at a different size because your first two were more startups with them. Mm -hmm. This is almost your third business with them when you came into a more mature business and took it up. Yeah. So I think when I came back, we were around 25 to 40 million in GFS. And when I left, we were, you know, just right around 300. So, I mean, it was, it was two, two, two and a half years of, of really, really high growth. So if you look at like second measure charts, like we just are a big hockey stick. It's, it's so cool. two very different companies. So when you went back into the company, what did you have to relearn? Honestly, it was or really unlearn, or I guess unlearn as well. I think unlearn, I had to unlearn the old way that we used to work together. So there was, mm -hmm. there was a lot of good DNA in how we worked together, but there was also a lot of, um, we had less, you know, financial parameters. So I was so used to not spending and kind of doing more with less. And I still, we still always do that. It's part of our culture to do it that way. Sure. But I had a little more wiggle room to play to hire, to expand hiring and the right headcounts, you know, not just headcount for headcount, but the right headcount. Um, and so I think I had to unlearn how we used to work together a little bit because they had, there were some things that were, you know, I would say slightly dysfunctional about how those two work together. They were very yin and yang and they, I think, made a lot of improvements there in their relationship. And so I had to kind of unlearn that, know that, that, okay, that's much better and going away. But otherwise it was a lot of the same problems that I knew were there that I, when I left, now we're just at a much grander scale. The, the scale is just there. And so it was very exciting. Now they're magnified. So, um, yeah, the company's got to be drastically different. Scale's different. The um, the span of control for you is different. How long did it take you to kind of hit the ground running? Or did you, was it easy because you'd come out of lead pages, which was a bigger company? 
It was pretty easy. I mean, I think it was, I knew it was going to be really intense because I, I think one, one thing that's probably lost on a lot of people is that a, it's a really operations heavy business and B it's, you're just on all the time and it's a very intense business because it's on demand. It's like people are ordering, they want their food now. So there is this very natural like ASAP culture about that business that is really fun and kind of addicting almost in a way. And so you just, you get back in and it was just hit the ground running so hard. And kind of the first big charge was the hiring, like I mentioned before. So that was mm-hmm. that dashboard of three hires I got to make. Um, and then also, uh, you know, this customer support department really needed a lot of help. So I put a ton of infrastructure there, you know, implemented Zendesk, they needed a whole new tech stack, um, new training program. They needed levels for people to be able to journey through and customer support to kind of grow themselves. Um, they needed performance management tools, you know, so we built depth charts and snapshots and I worked with the team on that. And so it was just like getting right into it. And it was, I think what was hard coming back was there was a lot of things to fix. And so it was like, where do you focus your time and prioritize. Right. That was the bigger challenge coming back in because I got pulled in a lot of directions right away. Curious what you learned with bringing in some of the senior talent, like some of the people that you were bringing in from the outside, um, as you brought on your second round of funding, you were able to hire probably more senior people, more seasoned people. Any lessons in doing that? Things that went well or things that didn't go well? I think where, so I think we hired seasoned people in some areas that were really critical, like finance and accounting. And we hired people that were a little more green in operations. And I like, when you look at the need of operations, it was, the need was so high from even just like a time commitment standpoint. And because our busiest periods are on the weekends and Friday nights, like we were at the office on Friday nights till, you know, eight, nine o'clock. I mean, that's how it really was in 2017, 2018. But you know what? It was fun. I mean, it was like Friday night. We had, we had music out in the open. And so that kind of greener, younger culture was, more prominent in operations. And we still were a company that operated with kind of a, a, a mentality of like, let's find folks that are green, really malleable. You can mentor them and coach them and you're not going to pay, you know, like a, a senior level hire because we can only hire so many of those people with our, our cash burn, you know, as we're growing. So. So you did like some of the younger Jack of all trades, master of none, high culture people. Yeah. Some of those folks. And then like, you know, a good example is my, my director of customer support. She, actually hired her as a as a training manager to overhaul all of our training content but she just naturally started leading the group and so um i just gave her the title and then her and i worked so closely together and it was really a a great relationship and then my director of dispatch had you know uh air force background came in from from that world and he had courier and kind of logistics experience and he was great he was a little more tenured but you know my my team our team was pretty was like pretty junior but fantastic it's amazing. My guess is they're gonna, a bunch of them are going to follow you around in your career. Uh, last last couple of questions. So when you have um, the acquisition happening, you're getting ready to go through an acquisition. Any any lessons or or kind of words of advice for people to be careful of or to be cautious of, or uh, both in, around working with the acquiring company, but then also with your team that can get distracted through that whole process. Yeah, I think there was, there's a lot and there's a lot, uh, there's a lot. I do to, like pre, I'm talking pre-acquisition lessons. Not yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think that there wasn't, I would say like the, the CEOs of Byte Squad and the CEO of Waiter didn't really do, I wouldn't say they didn't do their diligence and kind of mapping out how the companies were going to work together. And our CEOs really pretty much left after acquisition. So they were just, you know, kind of ready to move on. And the waiter CEO was, you know, on the road a lot doing um, like road shows with analysts and all this kind of other stuff and was doing that kind of whole thing. So we kind of became, uh, we, we got outside of our like current identity, like very fast. Mm. And 
I think that really, that, you know, kind of hurt us um, to a degree. So I, I think like doing your diligence on how are we going to operate together? Like, how are we culturally? Cause we were very different and, and still are very different operating companies. So I think, um, you know, our CEOs didn't pull us in for a lot of those types of conversations. And so by the time it came around to it, it was kind of like, Oh yeah. Kind of catching up then there's some problems with that. I'd say. All right. You've gone through a ton of growth. You've got a kid who's uh, not quite two years old. He's never going to listen to you, right? When he gets older, he won't. So I, I'm always curious as to what advice we would give ourselves. If you were to go back to, let's say, the 22-year-old Kyle who's getting yeah. ready to start off in his career, what, would, what advice would you give yourself? I think uh, one I kind of hit on earlier, so I got a couple ones for myself probably. One I kind of hit on earlier where it's like, hey, Kyle. Hey, hey, young Kyle. This is future Kyle talking to you. You're not very good at math, and that's okay. <laughs> But you can understand trends and you understand a P&L and you need to do some learning so you know just enough to be able to ask the right questions in those conversations, mm -hmm. in those meetings, in those rooms so that you can take care of your, your business units and your business. Um, but, you know, in the end of the day, like finance is there for that and like that's okay. So that's, that's one piece. And then two is I'm, a, I'm definitely a builder. Like it really took me this last kind of run, I think, to I love building like I love building teams. I love building companies. That's where I'm really happy and when I'm very energized. And when I stop doing that, I just get depressed, frankly. You know, yep. so I think just you're a builder, follow that path. Um, and it's right, like, you know, where you're where you're weak, others are strong, and where you're strong, others are weak. And, you know, we all gotta work together. So I think those would probably be three, three things. And I'd I'd say like maybe the last thing would be um pay a little more attention to strategy along the way. You know, you're so like in the weeds, like even early on in your career, like, but pay more attention to strategy. Cause like strategy is something I'm trying to hone more now and it's something I'm building more skill set around. And like, I've had a lot more exposure to it this last three or four years. So I think that's another thing I tell myself to take notes on through time. That's really cool. Kyle Hale, the COO for Byte Squad. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on the Second in Command podcast. Super. All right. Thanks, Kevin. You've been listening to Second in Command brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.